previously on Chillingworth. One of Bobby's associates in Jacksonville was a young man named Eugene Harvey. Bobby was arrested in the dragnet along with Eugene Harvey. Because the feds apparently allowed Eugene Harvey to escape, and because of the subsequent contact between the agents and Harvey, his colleagues began to believe he was an informant. When Floyd heard what had happened and learned that there was an informant, he went to Bobby with a proposal. The obvious solution to Floyd was to kill Eugene Harvey. Floyd began to plan yet another murder. Three days after Floyd shot Harvey in the top of the head, two men were bass fishing out near 20 Mile Bend. As one of the men reeled in his line to check his bait, he caught a glimpse of something floating and realized he was looking at a body. Welcome back to Chillingworth. Oh dear, there's so much horror in the world. The L-40 Canal lies outside the West Palm Beach city limits in unincorporated Palm Beach County. So the first law enforcement officers who arrived when the two bass fishermen called in about the bloated corpse they'd come across were Palm Beach County Sheriff's deputies. When Sheriff John Kirk had had a chance to consider the circumstances surrounding what was clearly a murder, he concluded that organized crime had been behind the homicide. They executed him uh, gangster style, I guess you would say, with his hands tied behind him and a gag in his mouth, a blindfold, shot him in the back of the head. You just heard Bill Pruitt. Kirk recognized the limits of his department when it came to investigating the mob. He decided he should call in the Florida Sheriff's Bureau, essentially the state police, or the equivalent of the state's FBI. The Florida Sheriff's Bureau was only a few years old, but the agency had established itself as an effective resource for sheriff's departments around Florida in cases such as the one that had just presented itself to Kirk. Before state agents took over during the early stages of the investigation, the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department took unusual steps to ensure that the victim could be identified beyond the use of his fingerprints. They wanted some identification his body was badly deteriorated, but there was this huge tattoo on his chest. And they, the investigators cut that off and put it in a tube of formaldehyde and kept it as evidence in the state attorney's office. That was Zell Davis, who served as Palm Beach County State Attorney. The Florida Sheriff's Bureau, in response to Kirk's request for help with the Harvey murder, sent a 30-year-old agent named Henry Lovern to look into the case. Lovern was a stocky, good-looking guy from Jacksonville who had served in Army intelligence before he joined the agency. Because Harvey had a record from his arrest in the Moonshine Roundup, agents were able to identify him through his fingerprints. The tattoo in the jar of formaldehyde would not be necessary at least not at that point. Not long after he was assigned the Harvey case, Detective Henry Levern discovered that the federal agents behind the investigation into the Jacksonville moonshine ring had deliberately created the impression that Eugene Harvey was an informant. The feds believed that this would lead the head of the organization to take steps that might incriminate him. 
like trying to intimidate Harvey or hiring someone to shoot him in the back of the head. The federal agents had allowed Harvey to escape after he was detained in Vero Beach, about halfway between Jacksonville and West Palm. And then on the day of the roundup, when the feds brought in Harvey and about 20 other members of the operation, Harvey was held and questioned for several hours after his comrades were released. All of this was enough to lead his co-conspirators to believe that Harvey was cooperating with lawmen. It was all bogus, though. Harvey hadn't agreed to say jack shit. Harvey had clammed up when the agents interrogated him. When Bobby learned that Harvey hadn't informed on anybody after he and Floyd had killed Harvey, he was sickened. He was most likely going to go to prison for moonshining and he had participated in the murder of a free-spirited kid. Lovern visited Lola, Lou Jean Harvey's 19-year-old wife, in Jacksonville, immediately after the Bureau assigned him the case. Lola and Janet Canaday were the last people to see Harvey in the Paxson Lounge just before he headed south with Floyd Holzapple. Neither one knew Floyd's real name. Lola was distraught, frightened, and reluctant to even speak with Lovern. She balked at the idea of identifying the man who she'd seen at Paxson's. Lola feared that whoever had ordered Harvey's murder would hunt her down if she identified them. Janet Kennedy, Harvey's in-law, on the other hand, agreed to do it. The police came to the door and told us they found his body. Oh yeah, they told us he was shot in the head. Lola did pass on the slip of paper with Floyd's license plate number scrawled on it, which Harvey had given her just in case Floyd did something like, say, shoot him in the back of the head at point-blank range. Henry Levern determined that the license plate was registered to a John Lynch. He quickly confirmed that the name had been used by Floyd as an alias more than once before in Miami and in West Palm Beach. Then Levern obtained one of Floyd's many mug shots and returned to Lola and Janet's house. Mr. Levern brought pictures in and asked if we could identify the man that took Gene off. And I did identify his picture out of a group of pictures. We moved out just a few months after that. They had told me to be quiet and keep my mouth shut, and I didn't do it, and I was afraid. I was 18 years old then. The next step for Lovern was to find Floyd. Floyd was keeping out of sight, spending time with Peggy's family in Georgia, checking in with friends in West Palm Beach to see if his name had come up in connection with the Harvey slang. It hadn't. The killing had gotten a lot of ink because of the grisly nature of the crime. Levern found out that Jim Yenzer was very close to Floyd and had worked with him, allegedly protecting the Dover Hotel's guests and their valuables. When Levern tracked Yenzer down, the wily former insurance peddler was taken aback, to put it mildly. 
Cagely at first, then more candidly, Yenzer revealed that he did have some notion of the person who was behind the Harvey murder. And that person was Floyd Holzapple. And then, maybe after contemplating what he could do with $100,000 of fortune and reward money that had been gathering dust for over three years, Yenzer told Levern he also knew something else that Levern might want to know. He knew what Floyd had done the night of June 14, 1955. Yenzer told the ambitious detective that on that evening, Floyd Holzapple and Bobby Lincoln had abducted Judge Curtis Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie and then drowned them in the Atlantic Ocean about three miles off of Manalapan. And that they had done it because their close friend and confidant, Joe Peel, had asked them to. And, and somebody got to pay for it. But you see, we are not in position to have to say be the judge in the jury seat. The worst thing about that is that God going he'd have to answer to God. That was Dan Calloway, a friend of Bobby Lincoln's. Calloway believed that Bobby most likely would have never gotten mixed up in a murder if he hadn't met Floyd Holzapple and Judge Joe Peel. But he let these two people into his life. And they convinced Bobby to help them abduct and kill the Chillingworths. Then in December of 1958, Floyd persuaded Bobby to abet and assist in the murder of Eugene Harvey. From that moment on, the Chillingworth investigation became Lovern's obsession. This meant that the killing of Eugene Harvey and Justice for Harvey, an obscure working class moonshine driver from Jacksonville, wasn't his priority anymore. The Chillingworth case took over. That was the case that everyone cared about. Because I have been so indoctrinated to be hating, dishonest, thieving, murderous people. But I want to do my part to continue placing them where they belong. When Levern met with Palm Beach County Sheriff John Kirk and State Attorney Phil O'Connell and told them what Yenzer had said about the Chillingworth murders, both men thought Yenzer's story seemed credible. On their own, over the course of three years, Kirk and O'Connell hadn't made any progress towards convicting the men responsible for the most despicable crime in Florida's history. They hadn't uncovered any evidence that implicated Joe, Floyd, or Bobby. All over Florida, the South, and the entire country, most people believed they would never solve the ghastly murders. Phil O'Connell was a revered prosecutor. As Palm Beach County State Attorney, he had convicted dozens of murderers and rapists. He must have felt a little sheepish to learn that Joe Peel had orchestrated the crime. Joe Peel, the smarmy lawyer who worked in an office just down the hallway in the Harvey building. 
O'Connell and Joe chatted frequently. When Sheriff John Kirk wasn't shaking down gamblers for cash all over Palm Beach County, he'd assisted O'Connell in the Chillingworth case. And Kirk indirectly got Agent Henry Lovern involved. Kirk had requested the Florida Sheriff's Bureau's help when it occurred to him that Lou Jean Harvey's murder was much more complicated than, say, some guy from Belle Glade snuffing out his wife's boyfriend and tossing him into the L-40 canal. Kirk saw that Harvey had been killed gangster style, as Bill Pruitt said earlier. He knew he needed to bring in a more sophisticated law enforcement agency. The Sheriff's Bureau sent Henry Lovern down from Tallahassee. Kirk didn't envision that the 31-year-old detective would end up running the Chillingworth investigation. Even though Jim Yenzer had told Henry Lovern who murdered the Chillingworths, and Lovern believed him, Lovern didn't immediately start slapping himself on the back for solving the case. Lovern knew he had to deal with the legal doctrine, corpus delecti. Corpus delecti, followed by Florida courts, provided that if the prosecution in a murder case couldn't show that the victim's body had been located, the jury couldn't find the defendant guilty of homicide unless the prosecution produced at least two credible eyewitnesses to the crime. Floyd knew all about corpus delecti too, and Floyd could comfortably claim that the Chillingworth's bodies would never be located because he and Bobby had forced Judge Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie into the ocean at a point where the water was several hundred feet deep. Way too deep for divers to ever find their remains. And unlike Lugene Harvey, the couple had been tossed overboard wearing belts that were crammed with enough lead weights to keep them down. Floyd had insisted on killing the Chillingworths this way so they would never be seen again. Floyd understood that corpus delecti would shield him, Bobby, and Joe, no matter how confident the prosecution might be that they'd killed the Chillingworths. And Detective Henry Lovern of the Florida Sheriff's Bureau knew that without the bodies of the victims or the testimony of two eyewitnesses, nobody was ever going to fry an old Sparky for the Chillingworth murders. That's why the Lugene Harvey murder case still mattered to Henry Lovern. It might give Lovern and his supervisor, Ross Anderson, a means of forcing Floyd or Bobby to spew their guts about the Chillingworths in exchange for a deal that would allow them to avoid the electric chair. That possible scenario scared the bejesus out of Joe Peel. Both Floyd and Harvey had consulted with him about the Harvey murder. He was, after all, an attorney as well as a murderer. They'd both asked Joe if he'd heard anything about the investigation. Joe knew exactly what they'd done. He also knew what might happen if they were prosecuted. The Harvey case made Joe's skin crawl. By May of 1959, Joe had figured out his prospects for enriching himself in Palm Beach County weren't that promising in the wake of the Chi-Chi Club murder conspiracy trial in his humiliating resignation from the Florida bar. 
So we up and moved Imogene and his two children about 100 miles north to Melbourne, near Cape Canaveral. The area was the center of the emerging aerospace industry, so it offered a lot of business opportunities for investors and entrepreneurs. And for people like Joe, who wanted to somehow take their money. Soon after he arrived in Melbourne, Joe met an impressionable young plumbing contractor named Don Miles. Joe managed to convince Miles to partner with him in yet another Belita venture. A few weeks after Harvey's body was found, one of Henry Lovern's colleagues at the Florida Sheriff's Bureau questioned Bobby. Bobby was a natural suspect because he was an alleged co-conspirator in the Moonshine case and lived in Palm Beach County. And Jim Yenzer had told Levern about Bobby's role in Harvey's murder. But Bobby calmly denied knowing anything about the crime. Levern also interrogated Floyd about Harvey's murder. Before long, Floyd realized there was no reason to get bent out of shape about the Harvey case because the only evidence tying him and Bobby to the murder was circumstantial. He didn't see Henry Levern as much of a threat. Levern realized pretty quickly that the Harvey case wasn't going to be strong enough to leverage Floyd and Bobby into confessing to the Chillingworth murders. He'd have to figure out another way to pressure the men to testify against each other in order to get around corpus delecti. If Levern approached either of them and said, hey, I know what you did to the Chillingworths because Yenzer told me all about it, neither of them was going to roll over. Levern knew he would need more leverage to get the suspects to turn on each other to save themselves. Levern imagined if Floyd had gabbed to Yenzer about the Chillingworths, he probably had told someone else about the crime or other crimes Floyd had committed. Throughout 1959, Levern sought out a variety of associates and friends of Floyd's in Riviera Beach and West Palm Beach around the time of the Chillingworth murders. Most of them were characters who he drank with in bars and nightclubs. Places like the Blue Heron Bar, Carlson's Lounge, Captain Alex's, the Chi-Chi Club, places that stayed open until 3, 4, or 5 in the morning on weeknights. Henry Levern questioned Frenchie Giroux, who lived on a boat at the Riviera Beach Marina, and Scratch Knowles, a bartender at the Blue Heron Bar. Frenchie and Scratch. Those were their names. Levern also talked to Bill Tennant, the one-armed and one-legged marine mechanic who sold a boat to Floyd, along with Tennant's brother. Bill Tennant told Levern that he'd seen Floyd filling a diver's weight belt with sinkers the day before the Chillingworths disappeared in 1955. And Tennant's brother said he'd seen Floyd's former girlfriend Mary Bickford, painting the deck of his boat a few days later. He recalled telling Mary he didn't like the shade of green she'd chosen. But beyond that, these conversations with Floyd's rogues gallery of pals revealed nothing of value to Levern. Ultimately, Levern understood that Jim Yenzer, the wily West Palm Beach native, was his only real asset in the case. 
Yenzer offered a way into Floyd, Joe, and Bobby's insulated, unsavory world. Yenzer was great friends with Floyd and Joe. He also knew Bobby well. They trusted her. Yenzer had allegedly taken part in a series of fraudulent automobile insurance claims with Joe and Floyd years earlier. And according to former county solicitor Chuck Nugent, Yenzer had conspired with his comrades in their plot to kill Joe's law partner, Hal Gray. In 1958, when Floyd was hired as head of security at the Deauville Hotel in Miami Beach, he got Yenzer a job as his assistant. Floyd and Peggy took Yenzer and his wife in for a time until they could afford their own place. The two couples became close. No one was better qualified to become Henry Levern's confidential informant in the Chillingworth case than Jim Yenzer. As for Yenzer's reasons for betraying Floyd and Joe, he might have truly believed that it was simply the right thing to do. It's possible that he simply believed that the Chillingworths and the people of the state of Florida deserved justice. Or he might have been enticed by the $100,000 reward still available to anyone who provided information that led to the conviction of the killers. That would be over a million dollars today. What exactly motivated Yenzer to go undercover didn't matter to Henry Levern and his colleagues at the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. They didn't care whether Yenzer was trying to redeem himself for something or had had a moral epiphany. It was just a mercenary betraying a close friend who'd once taken him in when he was down and out. All they cared about was what Yenzer could do to help them convict the three men who were responsible for the Chillingworth murders. Right after he enlisted him into the investigation, Henry Levern devised a strategy to exploit the access Yenzer gave him to Floyd and Joe. The plan involved a cutting-edge technology, magnetic tape. Before 1959, elsewhere in the country, detectives had relied on surveillance audio recordings a handful of times in criminal investigations. Henry Levern imagined that if he could record Floyd or Joe discussing the Chillingworth murders with Yenzer, he could confront him with the evidence and convince him to accept a plea bargain in exchange for testifying against his friend. It wasn't clear that these recordings would be admissible as evidence in a trial, but Levern believed they might intimidate the suspects into confessing and turning on their friends. This approach was a first for the Florida Sheriff's Bureau. The agency didn't even have tape recorders that were fit to be used in surveillance operations. So Levern picked up the equipment he'd need in a camera shop in downtown West Palm. A reel-to-reel tape recorder, a couple of microphones, several cables, and dozens of 2,400-foot reels of super-thin audio tape. Hello, test one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. India. 
we, we knew if we could get something on tape, we was on solid ground then. Because a person cannot deny his own voice when he hears it on tape. Without the money, Jimmy, I'm gonna tell you something. If I don't get them, I am gonna kill him. Because I got no fucking reason to stay around. Now, I'm gonna kill him right here, oh. or with you and Jim and Rod in the least. But I'm gonna kill him. It might take me a month, well, it might take me six months. You can't wait that long. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sykowski, and Brad Bernstein.